We're going to start by reading from the Heidelberg Catechism this afternoon. You can find Lord's Day 34 on page 889 in the back of your songbooks. Or if you're using a Forms and Prayers book, it'd be page 242. We'll be talking about the first commandment. And just like the song said, those running to idols will multiply griefs, but I will not confess their names with my lips. So let's turn to the Heidelberg Catechism and then we'll turn to the Bible as well to read about idolatry and learn a little bit more about it. We did questions and answers 92 and 93 last week from Lord's Day 34, so this afternoon it's 94 and 95. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayers to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. And 95. What is idolatry? Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Now if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. Last week when we studied the law in general, we read the beginning of 1 John chapter 5, and this week we'll be reading from the end of that chapter. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. I believe you can find that on page 1,213 in your pew Bibles. First John chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Thus far, the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, what God do you serve? You may think that's a pretty bold question to ask a bunch of people who are sitting in church, but I think it's a question we should ask ourselves more regularly. So let me ask it again. What God do you serve? What God do I serve? The answer that I'm sure would come out of our mouths is, why, of course, it's the Lord God who who is revealed in the Bible. But maybe the question was worded too directly. What if I rephrased it and asked, what do you trust in the most? Would you answer that question the same way? The same words would probably come out of your mouth, but what answer would come directly out of your heart if it could speak? Since our actions overflow out of our hearts, Maybe we can ask those around you who witness your actions every day what you trust in. What answer would your friends give? Do you trust your social status? After all, it's not what you know, it's who you know that gets you ahead in life. 
How about your neighbors? How would they answer that question about you? Do they see you gathering wealth and possessions? And your coworkers, what would they point, pinpoint as your foundation of trust? Do they notice that you rely on your intellect or your position of power? What about those who only see your social media posts? Would they be correct if they said that you trust the government? Well, maybe not the current government, but the other party. Do you put your trust in them? I think it's safe to say that we have the right head knowledge when it comes to the first commandment, but it can be frightening to gaze into our hearts when asked questions like that. As much as we hate to admit it, John Calvin was right when he said that the human heart is an idle factory. It is so easy to place our trust in all the wrong places. We are constantly trying to find our freedom from the troubles of this world by trusting in things other than God. But as we heard last week, true freedom is found not in following our sinful hearts, but by obeying the law of God out of love. Love for the one who came to earth to fully obey the law for us. So we will look at this first commandment through the theme of true freedom can only be found in the one true God. But in order to see the blessing of this commandment, we need to start off by looking at the prohibition and why it's so dangerous. So our main points this afternoon will be the evil of idolatry, the warning against idolatry, and the freedom of knowing the true God. Let's dig in and uncover the evil of idolatry. It would serve us well to start off by unpacking the definition of idolatry. In one of my Bible dictionaries, idolatry is defined as the worship of idols, the worship of images as divine or sacred. This seems to be fairly in line with what we intuitively think of whenever we hear the word idol or idolatry. But it's a far cry from the definition that our catechism gives us, isn't it? In answer 95, we read that idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So if I may ask, which definition do you like better? Does one of those sound easier to avoid than the other? If we had the choice, I think our human natures would all pick the first definition, because we're personally not in much danger of idolatry then, are we? We're not like the Buddhists or the Hindus that worship physical idols in temples and in our homes. We worship the triune God who can't be seen. But we can't just pick and choose which definition we like, can we? The dictionary provides a nice narrow definition, but the catechism answer is much more comprehensive and gets at the heart of all idolatry. There is one true God who has revealed himself in the Bible, and idolatry is trusting in anything in place of or alongside of him. We probably all know somebody who would fit in the category of trusting something in place of God. Maybe you have a neighbor or coworker who has made it known that they don't need God. They're well off financially and are above average morally, so they see no need to trust in a God they can't see. For some of us, it's a family member who fits in this category. Maybe you have a son or a daughter or a brother or sister who grew up in the church but left because they thought that trusting something besides God was far more practical. It's painful to see that happen, and we pray that God will restore them to the church in his good timing. 
But we need to dwell on the category of trusting in something alongside of God because that is where we get caught in idolatry. We deceive ourselves if we think that going to church and worshiping the true God means we're free from idols. In fact, that's the point I was raising earlier. Our minds can think that we're loyal to God, but our hearts can trust in all sorts of other things. And according to the Catechism, if we trust in even just one thing alongside of God, it's idolatry. Do you trust your social status to feel valuable in society? That's idolatry. Do you trust in your possessions for your security? That's idolatry as well. Do you trust your career to give your life meaning? That's also idolatry. Do you trust a political party to right all the societal wrongs? That too is idolatry. The list could go on and on, but I think you get the point. Our God is a jealous God, and he demands our exclusive trust and loyalty. Exclusivity. That's not a word that our 21st century ears hear too often. When it comes to relationships, our culture seems to have an allergic reaction to exclusivity. So hearing that our God demands our exclusive trust and loyalty makes some people think he's overprotective or controlling. But I think we all recognize the appropriateness of exclusive relationships when it comes to marriage, don't we? The love of a husband should be exclusive to his wife, and the love of a wife should be exclusive to her husband. And so often in the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is likened to a marriage in which God is the husband and the Israel or the church is the bride. And just like all husbands and wives here are jealous for each other's love, so too God is jealous for the love of his people. You probably don't have to think too hard about what the sin of idolatry would be in the marriage analogy. Adultery. I'm pretty sure that all of you who are married would and do take adultery very seriously. And rightly so. It's a breach of the marriage covenant. But does that level of seriousness translate to your view of idolatry? We should really view it in the same way. It's a breach of the covenant between God and his church. If we value covenant faithfulness in our marriages, then we should hold covenant faithfulness to God in high regard as well. But still, our human nature wants to protest against God's ex exclusivity. After all, God gave us all these good things to enjoy. How come the gifts of friends, possessions, a career, government, beauty, sex, sports, leisure, and everything in between turn into idols? The answer to that question lies in verse 19 of our text from 1 John. Read again with me. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, all of it, lies in the power of Satan. That means no earthly blessing from God is free from temptation. Satan has power everywhere we turn. He is the one who tempts us to turn gifts into idols, and how easily we fall into that temptation. But as the first half of the verse says, we are from God, so we are not enslaved to Satan as we once were. Through the power of the Spirit, it is possible for us to enjoy the blessings God gives us without turning them into idols. We can have friends and enjoy a certain social status as long as we stake our true value in Christ. 
We can possess material blessings and use them for our enjoyment as long as we recognize our dependence upon God for our daily bread. We can pursue a career and move up the chain of management as long as our purpose for getting up each day is to glorify God and enjoy him. And we can be involved in politics and support good candidates as long as we recognize that they are just a tool in God's hands for accomplishing his ultimate purposes. But it's not easy to maintain the right perspective on all our blessings at all times, is it? We are constantly tempted to elevate them to levels where we trust them for our safety, comfort, or value. Satan loves to tempt us in this way because he knows it detracts from our love for God. And that's what idolatry is. It's a love issue. We've been talking about it mainly in terms of trust so far, but love and trust go hand in hand here. When we trust the good things of this world in ways that only God is supposed to be trusted, we are displaying a love for the world that is competing with our love for God. This is why we are given such a stark warning against the idolatry. The simplest reason why we are to avoid idolatry is because God tells us to. The final verse of our text says it about as succinctly as possible. Verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And why are we to keep ourselves from idols? If you go back to verse 19, you can trace the logic. Idols belong to the realm of the evil one. So God's children are commanded to stay away from them. But knowing that idolatry is ultimately a matter of love, there are other passages that lay out more clearly the reason for staying away from idols. Perhaps the most familiar is found in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is asked which commandment is the greatest. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, how much of your love would be left over for idols? None. Not a bit. That sounds like an impossible amount of love to show. But would any less love be fitting for a God who loved us with the life of his very own son? Remember, we are not commanded to love God exclusively because he merely improved our lot in life. No, no, no. That would be the understatement of the century. The love that God showed for us through the death of his one and only son took us from complete misery and hopelessness to the most privileged position we could possibly imagine. We went from being God's enemies to being his adopted sons and daughters. And if his love for us was so great to do all that for us, how could we respond with anything other than exclusive love back to him? The Catechism echoes these thoughts at the end of answer 94, where it says that we are called to renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. So that begs the question, are you willing to renounce every idol in your life in order to keep your love for God pure? If you sense that you're idolizing some of your friends, are you willing to change the way you spend time with them? Are we willing to change our spending and giving habits in order to combat the temptation to trust in our wealth? If you find that you love your job more than you love the Lord, are you willing to make drastic changes to your role or your hours to change that? And if political parties have become an idol to you, 
Could you step back and spend more time in the word than in your favorite news source? Oftentimes, we think of renouncing as completely getting rid of something, but that doesn't have to be the case. Sometimes renouncing an idol can mean a change in how much you love that thing and how you view it in your life. But we should always be prepared to completely lose our idols. In fact, the way you respond to thinking about losing something is a good indicator of how much you love that thing. If you would view your life as meaningless without a certain material blessing, then idolatry has crept into your heart. But if you could still rejoice in the Lord without those comforts, then you likely have a healthy view of it. But let's flip that question on his head. Could you find meaning in your life without God? If your relationship with God could be taken away, how heartbroken would you be? Your answer here also says something about your love for God, and along with that, how clearly you see your need of salvation. And if you think that's a drastic conclusion to jump to, look with me again at the beginning of answer 94. In response to the question of what the Lord requires in the first commandment, our catechism states, that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, Avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints and to other creatures. Idolatry is so serious that it endangers our salvation. Now to clarify, the catechism is not saying here that those who were once saved can lose their salvation if they fall into idolatry, but that we are saved by grace through faith, and it surely is important that our faith be in the right person. If idolatry is running rampant in someone's heart, how are they to know if their faith was ever in Jesus Christ, the true Savior, or in one of their idols? How can one have assurance of salvation if their faith could be in Jesus or any number of things? Dear congregation, this is a warning about idolatry that we all need to hear, but I don't want anyone to be listening to all this with a sense of despair. As was mentioned last week, God's amazing love for us demands exclusive love back to him, and there is not a single one among us who can live that out perfectly. But God knew we would be unable to keep all his commandments. He knew that our hearts would be idol factories. So he sent his one and only son to live a life of perfect obedience for us, and then to die on the cross to take the punishment that our sins deserved. So when we look to Christ in faith for our salvation— He takes our sins upon himself and gives us his righteousness. So we don't have to go through life paranoid that if we are a bit too idolatrous, then we won't make it to heaven. No, that would be thinking with a legalistic mindset that we refuted last week. But neither do we have license to embrace our favorite idols because Christ paid for all our sins. That would be the antinomian way of thinking, which is also wrong. God calls out to us, Love me by having no other gods before me. And like little kids who try to dress like dad or mom, but end up being all mismatched, so too we strive to be like our Heavenly Father by being faithful to the command, but we fall miserably short. And although our sins and our idolatry grieve us, we need not despair because Christ has already paid for those sins. And recognizing that God no longer counts our idolatry against us, our love for him grows that much more. And that is our entrance into the freedom of knowing the true God.
Look with me again at verse 20 of our text. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Part of Christ's work on earth was to give us understanding of who the true God is and that we are in this true God's Son, Jesus Christ. What an amazing statement for us to take comfort in. And once again, the catechism helps us to unpack what this verse means. Hear what the middle section of answer 94 says in response to what God requires in the first commandment. That I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. First of all, Notice how many of these phrases have to do with the disposition of the heart. To know, to trust, look to God, love, fear, honor. Yes, all of these are expressed through outward actions, but they all flow out of the heart. When we are in Christ, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit softens our hearts so that our idolatry is replaced with these heart characteristics. We are freed from bondage to idols and made to know the true living God. Secondly, when looking at that same set of words, do you see how active our love is to be? Love for God is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling that he's got things under control. No, it is a busy love that has concrete objectives to accomplish. And knowing what God did for us, we shouldn't expect anything less from his claim on our life. God's love for us was far more than just knowing our name and making sure we knew who he was. So much more. God's love for us was very concrete in that Christ walked obediently on this earth for 30-some years, died on a cross, and rose from the dead, all so that we could have the promise of eternal life and union with him. If Christ's love for us endured that much action— then we should be longing for our love back to him to reflect that. And third, take note of the words that stress the completeness of the transformation of our hearts. We are made to know the only true God, called to trust him alone, and look to him for every good thing, and to love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. God is not content with being our primary God, or our favorite God. No, he is to be our exclusive God. As we saw in answer 95, we are not to have anything in place of or alongside of God. That is why we had to spend so much time going over the idols that get in the way of our devotion to God. For how can we trust in God alone if our hearts are full of other idols that we trust in? Are you sensing the freedom in this commandment yet? In one sense, the freedom of this commandment is knowledge for our own good. By saying, you shall have no other gods before me, God is not trying to limit us from following other real deities. Of course, no such deities exist. So God is not afraid of what will happen to him if we trust in idols. He knows what will happen to us if we do. If any of you have driven in the mountains you probably remember some sections of road that are right on the edge of a steep rock face. 
One of those roads where if you look down to one side, you can't see land below you for hundreds of meters. And the only thing separating you from that incredibly deep ravine is a section of guardrail. Does that guardrail hinder your driving or give you freedom? I would argue that by giving a clear and sturdy boundary to the road, that guardrail gives you more freedom to drive efficiently and safely. So in the same way, the first commandment gives us freedom because it shows us the proper road for our love and trust and it protects us from destroying ourselves in the pit of sin. But there's another more important way that this commandment gives us freedom. It's a freedom that we find in Christ. Christ fulfilled the law for us and paid for our sins so that we could be brought into relationship with God. And because Christ redeemed us, we are bound to keep the law, but we do so freely, knowing that the punishment for our failures has already been taken out on Christ. And because he also gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are united with Christ and being sanctified into his likeness, which means we have the opportunity to please our Father in heaven by keeping his commandments. So instead of trusting in the things of this world that are bound to disappoint us, we have the freedom to know the true God who alone is worthy of our love, trust, and honor. The end of verse 20 of our text says, He is the true God and eternal life. This is an echo of the beginning of Jesus' high priestly prayer recorded in John's gospel. Here, how his prayer starts. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What an amazing truth, a promise, really. Those who know God and his Son, Jesus Christ, have the promise of eternal life. Is that promise yours? Do you know the only true God and trust him alone? If not, then I urge you to accept Jesus into your heart so you can know him. He revealed himself to us to make that possible. And if you confess your sins and repent of them, God is faithful to forgive you of your sins, idolatry included. And for those of you who do know God, take comfort in the fact that your promise of eternal life rests in the hands of Jesus and not in your own ability to keep yourself from idolatry. Look to God for every good thing, and he will not fail you. He has set you free from the power of the devil so that you can know the God who can give you eternal life. Who wouldn't want to know and love a God like that? Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, thank you for your beautiful law. Thank you for showing us the folly of idolatry and the blessings of trusting in you alone. We are especially grateful that your son came to earth to fulfill the law for us and grant us his righteousness. Help us to love your law and to show our love for you by obeying your commands. Deliver us from the temptation to turn to idols. May we never trade our devotion to you for trust in the things of this world that cannot save. We rely on your Holy Spirit to do this faithfully, O Lord. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our mediator. Amen.